0: Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Congratulations. You're listening to episode 30. Our audience continues to grow every week, and I'm so thankful for all the positive feedback and great suggestions for future guests. Keep them coming. As a reward, we're working on some special Public Key branded merchandise giveaways coming soon. Often when people talk about why they think Web3 is going to be huge in the future, They point to the number of developers moving into the space. I wanted to understand more about Web3 development, so I invited one of my favorite followers on Twitter, at Dabit3, otherwise known as Nader Dabit, to join me this week. Nader recently joined the Aave and Lens Protocol team as Director of Developer Relations, but when we recorded this episode, he was leading DevRel for Celestia. Nita recently posted a Twitter thread titled, 15 thoughts from a developer working one and a half years in crypto, blockchain, and web three. And I couldn't let that go past without a deeper conversation. So that's what we'll get into this week. Last thing before the show starts, policymakers in the US have been working hard to advance the state of regulation of digital assets. My colleague and previous public key guest, Clark Flint Barr wrote a few thousand words on the latest, which we've linked to in the show notes. Definitely check it out after the episode. Today I'm joined by Nader Davit, who is leading DevRel for a company called Celestia. More than that, I've been following Nader on Twitter uh, since I started my journey into the world of crypto and web three, coming up on two years ago. I actually, earlier today, Nader, I went back through my folder of notes where I save important tweets and I found kind of thread of threads that you posted that I share with pretty much anybody who's asking for, hey, where do I get started in Web3? This was a post you you made on uh, New Year's Day this year, so a little over nine months ago. We'll link to it in the show notes. I'm a huge fan. I think the work you're doing to bring more and more people into the technical side of Web3 is super important. Thanks for joining me on Public Key.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: This got started having you come on the podcast because you posted this awesome tweet thread a couple weeks back that was titled 15 Thoughts from a Developer Working the Last Year and a Half in Crypto. I read through it and I said, wow, this deserves unpacking, right? It can't stay just in a handful of 240 character posts. We got to go a little deeper. We'll get to that. Before we jump into it, though, I'm a fan of talking people's crypto origin story. How did you go from working at Amazon to this crazy world of crypto and Web3?
1: That thread definitely resonated with a lot of people, I think, because it was just straight up honest ideas from someone who's kind of had a lot of experience, not only in this space, but in the traditional tech world. I would say that I've been a developer for almost 11 years now and I've worked in a lot of different areas. I've had I've had like three main areas of special specialization. I started off as a front end developer. I then transitioned into mobile development, where I was running my own consulting company, teaching companies like Amazon and banks and stuff like larger organizations, how to build cross platform mobile applications using a framework called React Native. And it was kind of like, really fun for me because one of the reasons I learned how to code was because I wanted to build apps. So with React Native, it was nice because you could write a single app and build it in two different platforms, iOS and Android. So it's just a little bit easier. Also, it was writing JavaScript. That was really exciting for me for a while. But I got a little bored. I was, again, running my own company. I had a book called React Native in Action through Manning Publications. I was doing, you know, conference talks and all that stuff that you would do when you're kind of like focusing on one thing. And then I had the opportunity as a self-taught developer, someone that didn't go to school to work at Amazon. And to me, that was kind of like the pinnacle of success. Like, oh, like I didn't go to school, but I'm still having this opportunity to work in this big company. And most importantly for me, being able to work alongside a lot of really smart people who did go to school, who did have that formal education, something I never really had before. So I looked at it as Really exciting because I was going to learn a new domain that was cloud computing. I was going to be able to work alongside some of the smartest people like in the industry. And I was going to learn a lot and I was going to get paid for it. And then the role I was going to be in was advocate developer relations. First time I'd ever taken a role like that. Seemed kind of fun because you're able to travel and you're able to learn in public. And it's not like one of those jobs where you're kind of shipping towards a deadline for like six to 12 months to ship some feature, instead you're able to experiment and learn and, and kind of play around with stuff. So it's it was a huge opportunity and I did take it. And ultimately was there for a little over three years, the AWS, and we were kind of in charge of a suite of tools and services that were mainly focused on full stack developers and maybe serverless technologies. I was intrigued very much at first because I had never really understood how to build with these tools and services. And I honestly kind of got a little bored because this was also during COVID maybe so we weren't traveling, you know, we were all working remotely, I think everyone was a little burnout. And I was kind of reading up and learning about crypto and and Web3 technologies at the end of 2020, early 2021. And it just seemed so much more like interesting and exciting, I would say the most important thing was like challenging. But in Web3 and blockchain, we're kind of like starting over almost in the sense that nothing at that point in time worked even closely as well as what we had. But the potential was there after glimpsing like the culture and the people there, it just seemed so much more fun and decided to take the leap, really over the course of like a few days or maybe a week of researching Web3 and just decided to kind of make the switch.
0: That's such an awesome story and actually very similar to my own where I had been in the web and application development cloud infrastructure space for nine years, I think, and got a call about chain analysis and went from somewhat skeptical, like not particularly familiar with the space, Through the month of December, like dove, you know, headfirst in and started the new job. You know, January of twenty one. It was something I felt the excitement and the challenge of learning something completely new that didn't seem like it was done. You know, like Amazon is incredible, as is like there's so many companies in that space, but it felt very finished. I think a lot of the appeal for me in crypto and maybe similar for you is like the fact that we're still discovering solutions to some of the harder problems. Um, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way.
0: People should follow you on, on Twitter because you're constantly promoting opportunities for more people to get into it. So if you're listening to this podcast... You want to get into the world of Web3 professionally, like Nader's a great advocate, I think, for opportunities that exist for people to come into the space. Shifting a little bit to the to this Twitter thread. So maybe I'll just read a couple of these lines and unpack them a little bit. First one in the thread was, most people don't care about NFTs as they're used today. Say more about that.
1: I think that we're in this bubble where people are really excited about like NFTs, but the most common use case, at least um, at first, you know, was just people using them as profile pictures and speculating on them. And I think from outside looking in, for us, we understand the technology and people are often understanding like this isn't the end game. This is just kind of what we're doing today. But I think from the outside looking in, most of the time, people don't understand any of that. And they, they only see the headlines, right? Those are the things that people come away with. And unfortunately, most of the things that we saw for a while were either scams, or they were things like Board Ape Yacht Club, or some of these more expensive NFTs when The Rock was selling for like a million dollars, even though that those weren't the things that most of us are caring about the most, those are things that people saw. So like the narrative started off really bad. And now that we have like more interesting use cases, like a lot of times people are now using these for memberships, or they're using them for proof of knowledge, or they're using these things like what lens protocol is doing for essentially uh, providing a way to follow and unfollow someone on a social graph, like, and then you can kind of use that for uh, identity and access control. Like some of these are the really cool use cases, but most people don't know that these exist. So maybe that's a good idea for me to dive into one day is to write like a really extensive blog post about NFTs that have nothing to do with the buying and selling of visual art. When I talk to someone about NFTs, I like to talk about like everything, but we need a lot of really high quality, credible projects that are actually doing this. That's the problem we have in Web3. Everyone has ideas, but no one actually, I mean, not knowing. but a lot of the times we talk about ideas as if they exist. When in reality, we need to kind of like actually build that out and show someone, hey, this is the better user experience because that's all people really care about. Like, is this a better thing than what we had before?
0: The counterpoint on this one, interestingly, we had uh, Raj Gokal, who's one of the Solana co-founders. He was at our event back in May in New York called Lynx. And he actually made a, a point that hadn't occurred to me because I'm I'm probably on the more skeptical end of the personal profile picture use case. Like I'm not much of a collector been since I was a kid with Beanie Baby or with uh, comic books and baseball cards. I think a lot of people were with things like Beanie Babies. There's a collector's mentality there, but the social excitement around some of these things actually brings a lot of people in. So Raj's point was how many people got an email account for the first time because their cousin or their friend wanted to send them the dancing baby gif that was like viral you know the first uh, real viral thing going around on the internet and he was arguing you know the personal profile picture use case was opening up the audience to nfts for the first time the negative blowback that we saw when like everybody started adding their profile pictures as an nft on twitter it was pretty it was pretty strong negative blowback i i don't know if that was net adding people to the ecosystem or not
1: I get where he's coming from. And he does have a really great point that did bring awareness, you know, because everyone like Snoop Dogg and Eminem and NBA basketball players and football players, all these really high profile people. In fact, Jay-Z is my favorite artist. All these people are like rocking like NFTs. But uh, yeah, but again, I think that if someone sees that and they're like, oh, this is cool. And they click on it and they're like, oh, this is like a half a million dollar image. Just so out of touch. I think with what most normal people. And I think like the thing that we're working towards in Web3 is like global adoption. And therefore, we have to take into consideration, we want to optimize for the 99%, not the 1%. And I think that even spending like $500 or $100 on a profile picture is kind of like something that most people in the world won't do. I have been like fortunate enough to like make decent money. And I- I've actually played around with 1000s of dollars of NFTs and stuff like a lot of us have. But it's also good to keep in mind that this is a little bit out of touch, I think with what most people would feel reasonable <laughs>
0: I think this brings us a great transition to the second point in your tweet thread was most people will not or maybe should not pay to transact. Yes. Say more about this. this. This one surprised me a little bit because are you saying transaction costs on chain should be zero or that transaction costs should be embedded more like a credit card transaction today where generally the person swiping the card is not thinking about the fee they're paying to execute that transaction?
1: So this is a really important conversation, I think, that hasn't really been talked about as much. I think what I mean when I say that is that the only time you should pay for a transaction is for a financial use case. And I think it's okay to pay for buying and selling an NFT. I think it's okay to pay... for sending and receiving money, I don't think it's okay to pay 50 cents or a dollar to do that. In fact, I think we need to be working for transaction costs that are low enough to where it makes sense to buy coffee. That should be where we're, we're going. And we're getting there. Like we already have L2s and side chains and stuff. Solana is a great example where you can kind of like transact for a fraction of a penny. So we're getting there. But there's more to go into that. But I think one thing to keep in mind also is that most of these chains are only transacting a few thousand operations per second max. In fact, most of them are closer to like a few hundred. And when we think of like a traditional application that we interact with like Twitter or Facebook or Amazon, these systems can handle, I would say tens of millions of operations per second up to maybe 100 million operations per second. And blockchains are typically shared execution environments. So Ethereum, or let's take, for example, Solana or, or maybe Polygon. These are smart contract platforms where every application shares the same execution environment. Every user is sharing all of those applications. So let's say you have 10,000 apps, 10,000 users. You now have, my math sucks, but let's say, I don't know, what is that? Tens of millions of users all transacting, sharing almost like a server. But I think like it's okay to pay for a transaction for, for a financial use case, but I think the global adoption isn't gonna come from that. I think it's gonna be backwards. I think we're gonna need to onboard people for free. And once they have a wallet, and they're able to start earning tokens, And then they have money, then they can start using it. And then that's how they get their foot in the door. And I think the way that that's going to happen is through social and gaming applications. Danny Kulichov, who's the founder of Lens, he built Lens to be free to use, meaning that you can actually transact completely free. That means the protocol itself is still being monetized. Like the transaction costs are not disappearing. Someone's still paying them, but not the user. So they're using a relayer and they're using a meta transaction transactions, which are a way to kind of have a intermediary between the user and the protocol that essentially allows people just to sign a transaction and then some other party is paying for that. In the past, that would have been too expensive, but now we have protocols that are doing interesting stuff around data availability to make the data storage costs uh, a lot less. So you're able to kind of say, okay, this transaction is gonna be one tenth of a cent. I'm gonna subsidize that for the user. So the user is just basically using the app for free and we're like subsidizing that. Now, this is actually really great onboarding mechanism for the globe. I think that we also don't realize how hard it is for people to connect their bank account to something like an exchange and like get tokens and then transfer them in the wallet and then use that wallet. And then actually paying for some social media interaction just doesn't make sense. Anyway, we believe the mainstream will come by interacting with the blockchain with non financial transactions, and some later users will become active or passive DeFi users. So like his idea is like they're going to get onboarded through these social graph applications for free. And even in the application, they might actually start earning tokens and stuff. So then they have tokens and then they can use them. So It's kind of like reversing the way that we've been doing it.
0: That makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, just if you look around the world today, let's take the United States, most people have a bank account of some sort, checking account, savings account or a credit card. Those numbers go down pretty quickly when you get outside the U.S., you go to more developing nation areas. But if I think about comparing the number of people in the U.S. who have a bank account to the number of people who have like an equities exchange account, it's a pretty small number in comparison. And so if we think about DeFi as being more complex financial transactions and interactions, it stands to logical reason that you're not going to have the whole world using DeFi. You know, the average person is probably Not going to have a particular need to directly interact with a smart contract protocol for exchange of funds. I like this idea of bringing transaction fees down, right? I mean, there's been a lot of ink printed over the last year and a half about. Gas fees, particularly in Ethereum, gas wars around some of these popular NFT mints where you know people are just burning millions of dollars in aggregate transaction fees. The idea of also being able to shift that transaction execution cost from the user to a centralized entity makes a ton of sense to me. But is that counter to the principles of decentralization? To have somebody paying on your behalf, or is that like an acceptable, acceptable element if you're a if you're a decentralization maximalist?
1: I think if you're a decentralization maximalist, then that, yeah, you're probably not going to be cool with that. But I think that what we actually have today, even with most decentralization maximalists in their actual day-to-day work, are what I would call a spectrum of decentralization. And everything falls within that spectrum. And there is no such thing as pure decentralization. Even if you look at Bitcoin or Ethereum, like these are on a spectrum. And therefore, we have to also take into consideration other things like user experience, and we have to take into consideration things like where does censorship resistance fit into this? Is it okay to compromise censorship resistance for decentralization? To me, the answer is no, but I think there are compromises in decentralization that enable censorship resistance, but also enable a better user experience and more accessibility. And I think that those are the choices that we need to figure out. And I think that those are the compromises we need to make today until we get to the point where we can kind of have more decentralization. And I think coming from the traditional tech world into this world is a huge, huge shock because of how much more complicated it is to build decentralized protocols than it is to just to build a centralized application. There's a reason that it takes a few days or a few weeks to spin up an application, but it takes sometimes years to build out like a protocol.
0: I think if you step back from the government uh, censorship explanation of why we need decentralization. And you just put that to the side for a minute. So I'm not minimizing it, but just for the, the point of conversation, a lot of centralized services are beneficial. It's a simplified user experience, or it's me as a user being able to outsource a task that I don't I don't want to touch. I read a piece from um, Moxie Marlinspike, the former CEO at Signal. He published his expo- exploration of Web three, and he really questioned hard this utility of decentralization. And the analogy that he used was: while most people could run their own server, right? We could buy hardware, we could plug it in under under my desk here in the office. I could host my own mail server. The average person chooses not to do that. It's not where they want to spend their time and effort to be a Linux admin or app admin. I feel like sometimes we get over-focused on decentralization at the cost of the end users we're actually trying to build for. And you made the point in your Twitter thread, like points of centralization will need to to exist in order to provide better UX, at least temporarily. I feel 100% on board with that point.
1: I thought that he gave one of the more valid criticisms of Web3 because he was coming to the conversation from a truly pragmatic point of view maybe. I just felt like he was coming at it from the point of view that was someone I can actually trust that he was coming from a good place. Whereas a lot of the criticisms that you often see, I feel like are not very genuine. They're just people like, taking their points of view and forming them into an opinion and stating it publicly in order to kind of push some agenda while they're very uneducated about what they're talking about or they are intentionally being not truthful about how they're talking about stuff. Like I appreciate negative feedback when it comes from people that are coming from a good place, you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't think of somebody who's probably more, more of an advocate for privacy and kind of user autonomy than he is, right, with the company that he built around the, the messaging technology. All right, stablecoins. You said stablecoins are one of the most useful, important, powerful primitives, but they're still not understood by most people. Say more about this. What's your take on stablecoins and why, why do you think they're so misunderstood right now?
1: Yeah, I think if you look at, at crypto as the core use case, it's essentially internet native payments, something that we didn't really have before. I can write a single line of code in a smart contract and I can send money between two parties. If you start thinking about how much easier and how revolutionary that is compared to the, what we did in the past, if you are a developer and you've ever tried to integrate payments and you start thinking about all of the layers of complexity that exist and how you have to put all of these brittle, not good interoperable Lego blocks together to to aid some solution that ends up somehow working and it doesn't really work globally, it'll just work for some people kind of replace that with this permissionless protocol where anyone can download a wallet and send payments, you just have now really changed how people access the financial infrastructure. So now that that exists, crypto isn't that useful, though, when it comes to volatility for people to use in their day to day lives, like I wouldn't ask to get paid. And like Ethereum or Bitcoin or something and just leave it in my bank account and be like, oh, today I'm gonna have like $1,000 and tomorrow I'm gonna have 500, but hey, who cares, like whatever, right? Crypto is a useful primitive, but cryptocurrency isn't a good currency. So we need something that is, that is actually usable so people can actually have it and and use it in a day-to-day setting. And therefore, we have stable coins, and they have become more and more dominant. More and more people are using them. They're actually gaining a lot of adoption in places like South America and the Middle East and areas where... They have true volatility with their currencies. We're not talking about this inflation that people are complaining about here of 10%. These people, like, obviously are dealing with 100%, 1,000%. They're even dealing with government intervention. Like in Lebanon, you see people robbing the banks to get their own money out because the government literally is not letting them withdraw their own money. And the money is becoming worthless during the time that it's sitting in there. Having like a global payment that is volatile that anyone can like interact with and use, if it was adopted globally and it's, you know, it's starting to become that way. But if it was already, then I wouldn't probably use anything else. I would want to get paid in that. I would want to pay in that. I would want to keep my savings there. And I kind of already do that a lot with USDC and and die and um and, and other stable coins. But like I think it doesn't matter as much to people like me because I can also bank on the US dollar. I know my government Government's not gonna probably shut down my bank account.
0: It's a great point. There was an article that was making the rounds last week where uh, Stripe has enabled USDC payments for paying out people. And there's a cool company out there called Braintrust, who is building a kind of a work platform, job platform in the Web3 universe. And the blog talked about an individual who lives in India and he could get paid out in native currency, but it would take three to five days to clear into his bank account. Or he could get USDC and payments would clear in like... Like three to five minutes. And I think for all the reasons that you just you just said, and then you have kind of the simplicity enabled by a payments provider supporting stable coins like Stripe, I think you get the best of both worlds, which is like great user experience. How do you react to, um, like you mentioned, you personally hold DAI. I've been following along as they've sort of been shifting their strategy in the mix of what's actually backing that stable coin. Appears that it may shift in the future, just coming off of the collapse of the terra ecosystem i know at least personally that the only stable coin i'm holding is is usdc like is that the wrong perspective to have like i actually have you know some nervousness about some of the other the non dollar asset backed stable coins am i being too cautious you think
1: no, I think everyone should be very cautious, especially after what we saw happen this year with uh, with Terra and Luna. And I personally, yeah, kind of like diversify my stable coins even across a few different ones. I can just talk about the things that I do with the full disclosure that I'm not like a financial, giving financial advice. If I don't understand something well enough, I just tend to like take the advice from people that I look at as experts.
0: You touched on this earlier, and I think an area where you do have some expertise is blockchains not yet scaling for mass adoption. You know, we both come from the, the Web2 cloud infrastructure world where, you know, scale is quite literally built for hundreds of millions of people, in some cases, even billions of people on on certain application platforms. In the world of blockchains, we're, we're seeing multiple orders of magnitude, less scale. How should we be thinking about that problem? Like, what's the solution? And I maybe we get into uh, some of the cool stuff you're doing at uh, Celestia as well, because this plays into the future, I think.
1: Disclaimer, and this is something that I will also often talk about when I get critics about blockchain, trying to compare databases blockchains. If you try to compare them one-to-one, then you have to take into consideration that the use cases are a little different. Yeah. But I also understand that we want to get to the point where we are scaling these applications to that point. At AWS, I remember I did a nice demo and I was able to just spin up a DynamoDB database. I was able to spin up a serverless function and a React application. And I had this voting application that I, I was simulating votes. And I was able to process like a million votes in 10 seconds without any optimization at all. It was just out of the box. And, like, I I pressed... button and a million operations goes through flawlessly like i'm not a i'm not an expert at this stuff i was just able to just get it working and it only took me like a day or something if we can contrast that with the current state of blockchains a database is typically used for a single application a blockchain is typically a shared execution environment meaning that if i have this database that can scale to a million operations in 10 seconds then i'm still the only application using that database blockchains are shared by at least most blockchains are, if you're not, having like an application specific chain, which is very rare today, then you are sharing your execution environment with every other application there. That's first of all, a prohibitive resource constraint to start with. Uh, To go beyond that, most blockchains today only handle a few hundred or maximum a few thousand transactions per second. So if you look at Solana, which I think is a good technology, they still often will tweet things like, hey, we just hit 4,000 transactions per second. Now that's great and all that, it's better than maybe where we were before. But if you kind of compare that to where we need to be, it's very, very obvious that we have a long way to go. And again, this 4000 transactions per second is shared by every single application in the entire world, the scale that we're kind of needing to be versus where we are today is we have a long way to go. So how do we kind of get there? There's a couple of different things that people or teams are working towards. And if you look at the traditional tech stack, you have two main ways that people are building applications. I think you have monolithic architecture, and you have a microservice architecture. I think when we started off, everyone was building like monolithic services and applications. And we've kind of now with the cloud, and with different managed services, we're kind of splitting off into more of a microservice architecture. The reason that a lot of people do microservice architecture is that each layer can like specialize in a single thing. And it can kind of be, you can kind of like, interact and update one little area without it affecting often the whole system. And you can also kind of buy into these managed services that do something really well that you don't have to kind of like do write all that code yourself. So a good example of this is something maybe like Amazon Cognito or Okta that does identity and authentication uh, management for you. You don't have to write all this code. You kind of like buy into this piece and you kind of gluing it all together. Blockchains for the most part up until today, you could consider as a monolithic architecture. Ethereum, Solana, pretty much all of the blockchains other than maybe Cosmos and Polkadot are having as blockchain that does execution, consensus, data availability, and could also say settlement maybe. They're doing all these things and limited in a few different ways. One is the resource pricing. So when you're interacting with the network and you start having a lot more bandwidth and usage coming through, then the price starts becoming more and more expensive. You have to pay for the storage. You have to pay for the execution. And I think what we're s- starting to see is that people are realizing like th- this isn't the right approach. Therefore, we're now st- starting to see kind of a movement towards what you could call modular blockchains. The first time we really saw this was kind of like offloading the execution into a layer two a roll up. So everyone at this point knows of roll ups, Optimism, Arbitrum, all the different ZK roll ups. That was kind of the first time we started seeing uh, movement towards this mo- more modular architecture where we're, we're kind of saying, okay, Ethereum is just going to be settling these batches of transactions. And we're going to use a optimistic roll up like Optimism, where we transact like a thousand transactions and we batch them up into call data, and then we're posting those to Ethereum. We're also now now starting to see is innovation that goes maybe even more beyond that. And that's where Celestia comes into play. But that's also where Polygon Avail, even the Ethereum roadmap itself with the dank sharding and protodank sharding is kind of like moving in this direction where they are implementing new interesting ways for data availability and for data storage, I guess you could say. The two main ways that you can scale blockchain are execution and data. And there are really a lot of different approaches for both of those.
0: This is a fascinating area to me because one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is oftentimes you see people comparing blockchain to the most common payment rails technology, like the Visa or the MasterCard networks, and you get a lot of comparisons about transactions per second. But when I think about the things that I know people who are using blockchains today, it's not just you know, a simple payment where I'm sending money to a merchant in exchange for goods or services, like that's one of 50 or hundred different use cases that might include, you know, lending. It might include some sort of investment. It might include like token swap, you know, the equivalent of like a foreign exchange transaction. And so I've been thinking lately about this in the current infrastructure that runs the financial system. There's very specific applications built for each one of those, right? There's an entire industry of companies that builds core banking solutions to handle deposit and withdrawals. There's an entire technology stack that's matured over decades that powers the payment rails behind Visa and MasterCard. Entirely different system of infrastructure that runs like an equities exchange, like the New York Stock Exchange or ICE or NASDAQ. And we're trying to do All this stuff on one blockchain whether it's solana or ethereum we're doing it all in the same place all at the same time it seems like the infrastructure may not be optimized for any one case because it's attempting to support everything and that's before you even get to this like price collision where it's like well hey i may be doing low value high volume payments transfers But because I'm on the same network as a low volume, high value transaction settlement, like these two things get priced similarly if executed at the same time. And that's not good for anybody, right? It sort of freezes out the people who... Should only be paying, you know, a fraction of a cent to transact, you know, sending somebody ten dollars because it's it's competing for infrastructure resources with somebody that's doing a hundred million dollar settlement transaction. That thought has been bouncing around in my head, and as I started reading about what you all are doing at Celestia and this this whole concept of modular blockchains, I was like, oh, this makes so much sense because we've got some core primitives that are exposed by a network like Ethereum, but we need to be able to extend those primitives in order to have more tailored solutions to solve each of these application cases. Am I thinking about this even remotely correctly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good mental model to have.
0: I'm glad I figured something out today. That's like, that's a big achievement for a Monday. So
1: yeah, I mean, there's quite a few things that if you start reading into why modular blockchains are becoming the way that people are are moving towards their architecture, there are a few different things that are beneficial. One is the fact that with technology that makes the data availability, I would say, well, I would I wouldn't just say it makes it possible, but the implementation details around how Celestia and how Avail and how Ethereum are going to be making this possible is through a technique that has been called data availability sampling via a process called erasure coding. And without going into like too much technical complexity and nuance, let's just say this is what ends up happening. You're able to scale the block size without affecting the pricing of the actual transaction costs Almost indefinitely. That means the more data that is stored, the larger the blocks can get without affecting performance or price. Typically, the more data that's stored, the more that price goes up because you need to have efficient resource pricing in order to kind of make this all work. But with erasure coding and, and data availability sampling, we now have the ability to scale block size without affecting the cost, which is a huge innovation. It's it's something that we never seen before. And that's why these modular blockchains like Celestia are less expensive to use at that level with the data storage level. Also decoupling the execution allows developers and teams and, and everyone to kind of experiment with different execution environments, and even build execution environments that are built specifically for modular blockchains like Celestia. So to give a good example of why this is good, right now, Ethereum is essentially the settlement layer for layer twos and rollups on Ethereum, right? The cost to transact on Ethereum is expensive because it's not only accepting call data from optimistic rollups, and it's not only accepting data from uh, ZK rollups, but it's also accepting transactions from just single interactions. So if I swap a token on Uniswap, then that is, I can transact on the Ethereum network. So we have all this stuff happening. You also have backwards compatibility for Ethereum, but what if we built a layer like Ethereum that was built specifically and only for rollups and call data and uh, these layer twos. And we optimized that layer for that specifically. And on top of that, you're using Celestia or another modular blockchain for the data availability. And on top of that, you're using an execution environment that is doing some more advanced techniques like parallel processing. You now have cost savings at every single layer of the stack and you're able to just have a less expensive and more scalable blockchain. All of those different layers are gonna be there. We're gonna have the data availability and consensus layer. We're gonna have the settlement layer, quote unquote, as an optimized layer specifically for modular blockchains. And then we're gonna have better execution environments that are being used.
0: That's got me excited for the future. I'm uh, kind of pumped. Erasure coding is a term I'm familiar with, by the way, from the the world of backups. Like this is how tools like Data Domain figured out how to do deduplication and take hundreds of terabytes, but store it only in, in a few terabytes worth of space. I hadn't actually picked up that that's being used in the blockchain data availability world, but now actually starts to make a lot of sense. So we'll put some links in the show notes for everybody that's interested in this topic and wants to go deeper. One last question, because I think you see and actually touch a ton of tech across the ecosystem. Like what's getting you excited besides your day job? What's the stuff out there that you see is cool that people got excited? excited listening to this conversation. They should go check out as a as a next step.
1: There's so much stuff that I'm excited about right now. One is Arweave, which is a protocol that allows you to have permanent file storage. Similar to how blockchains allow permanent data storage, you can only store tiny pieces of data on a blockchain because it's just cost prohibitive. But the Arweave network allows you to store images, files, and more importantly, even websites. So you can actually deploy your website and you pay a single transaction cost and theoretically, as long as the network still exists 10 years, 50 years from now, it still should work. So that means uh, you don't have to pay a hosting fee for your file and storage, you just kind of like pay once and it's there forever. So Arweave is really cool, Uh, a lot of adoption there. There's also Lens Protocol, which I talk about quite a bit. It's a social graph protocol and it's a code base that you can literally just fork and deploy yourself or you can build on top of other people's data essentially. So you have this idea of like front ends that are now kind of competing to build out better interfaces. So it's a lot of innovation happening there. Um, I'm a big fan of like abstracting away some of the blockchain stuff. So the average normie quote unquote user can use it. So Accord is like an application that, or I would say like, yeah, it's an application that's built on top of Weave that allows you to use Weave without having like any Weave tokens. There's Fleek which allows you to deploy applications to decentralized protocols like IPFS and soon Arweave without having to know anything about blockchain stuff. And yeah, I would say those are kind of the main things that I'm excited about right now. <laughs> In addition to, bless you.
0: Those are four awesome uh, awesome things for people to check out. We'll put all those in the show notes. Nader, this has been an awesome chat. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your thinking here. Everybody should go follow you on Twitter after this conversation. And hopefully we, we can have you back on the show in a future date.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, thanks again for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, share your thoughts with me, at IanAndrewsDC. And my guest, Nader, at Dabit3 on Twitter. We're now six weeks past the Ethereum merge, as the switch from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake happened on September fifteenth, two 2022. Chainalysis had previously published a blog speculating how the merge might affect the cryptocurrency ecosystem generally, and the Ethereum blockchain specifically, and shared a few on-chain indicators to keep an eye on. One of the things we highlighted was the potential for merge-related scams, and we've now witnessed at least 1.2 million worth of Ether that's been lost shortly before, during, and after the merge took place. Check out the link in the show notes to our blog post on Ethereum merge scams and read up on what to look for and how to stay safe.